if you're physically able. Can you stand with me as we read from God's precious Word from chapter 1? This is the book of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all, all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you all in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. We carried on to verse 8. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Let's pray. Father, as the book is open here, I pray you'll open our hearts. Uh, It's not a matter this morning of of whether or not you're going to speak to us. You've already spoken to us through your word. But the real question and the real concern, really, that we pray for is that we'll hear. That you'll give us ears to hear. That you'll take our hearts and you'll so fashion them right now. And so calibrate them toward you. That all the distractions that we are often plagued by will be removed. And all the mental gymnastics that we can go through right now and and, and all the places that our imagination can, can take us and, and all the attempts by the enemy to draw us off of what you would have to say, that you would put them down this morning and that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to your people and, and, uh, and, and uh, maybe somebody here doesn't know you. And Lord, we just ask you, Jesus, that you would open up our hearts to your truth for your glory as we celebrate, love on, worship, and look to and trust in, depend upon and draw close to your Son. In the sweet name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The, the real focus I just want to simply make this morning, and I warn you, it's a, it's a rough day for you all. It's a bad day for you because the clock in the front of the room is working, but the clock in the back of the room has been taken down. So I can't see it. So I, some of you are probably tempted to go out in your car and get your rearview mirror out. Let me hold it right there. Just say, hold that right there. Uh, but um, the, uh, the the real theme that I feel led to go to this morning really can be lifted from verse 4. And let's look at 3 and 4 so we can get the flow of the, the comments. The Apostle Paul said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That verse 4 there is what I've drawn, our, I want us to draw our attention to today. And in uh, several versions of the Bible, uh, the most notable would probably be the NIV. The rendering of that verse is is this, and some of you might have that. I don't know this morning. It says in the, in that in that in that translation, 
that the Apostle Paul is making prayer requests with joy for the church at Philippi for their partnership in the gospel. Their partnership in the gospel. And that's the phrase I want to focus in on this morning, is that we're partners in the gospel. Do you realize that? You and I are partners in the gospel. Back when uh, when I was raised uh, up, my dad was an avid uh, avid golfer. He was a, he was what they would call in golfing terms a scratch golfer, which means that he was he was good. <clears throat> and <clears throat> and he would go out to the golf course and play. And it really, to be honest with you, was out of balance in his life and was almost like a little god to him, really. And he spent a lot of time at the golf course, and so. As a result of that, I picked up the game too. And a lot of times, he would play in tournaments on the weekend. And every now and then, instead of using a golf cart and going around the course, he would get me to caddy for him, carry his bag. Lovely. You know, 150 degrees in the shade. Uh, but um, uh, I, I, I relished those times because I got to spend time with my dad. It was, it was the fact that I was hanging out with him. And often in the term, tournament formats, I was thinking about this this morning, in particular, uh, the the format would be that you would have a partner uh, that that you played together, and not to get into the nuances of the way the game was played, but your partner and you would play the the hole together. And if I had a let's say I had a five on the hole and my partner had a three, then the three would be the one that account for me. Of course, the golf the lower score wins, and so there was some relief from the pressure that you would normally have if you were playing by yourself because you had a partner. So if you had a bad hole in particular and your partner was having a good hole, you kind of could relax a little bit because you're thinking, man, my poor score on this hole is not the one that's going to count. It's going to be my partner. <clears throat> and the partner he used to often play with was my golf coach in high school. And he was very they were both very good golfers, but they would play in a partnership together. And I just remember how fun it was to watch that happen because every time that my golf, uh, my golf coach would do well, my dad wasn't competing with him. They were on the same team. And so he celebrated every good shot he made and every good shot and every good putt he made and vice versa. And in the body of Christ, we're partners in the gospel. And we have a stake in this. And that's why we went over the sharing of the gospel is because we have... We, we have a vested interest in this partnership. And, and I want you to do well in, in your journey, and you should want me to do well in mine. And, and if, if, I'm, if I'm having some struggles, you want to come alongside and help me in my struggles, and I want to help you in yours, because we both want to play this game, if you will, well, because the gospel is at stake. And, and I guess before we talk about our partnership in the gospel... It'd be helpful to understand a couple of things about the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians was written to the church at Philippi, and the church at Philippi was the first church established in Europe, and it was done through the ministry and the planning ministry of, of the Apostle Paul. Usually, the, there, was a, there was a handful of Jews in the city of Philippi, but we know it was only a handful of Jews because there weren't enough Jews there to actually form a synagogue. Normally, if you're going to form a synagogue, you had to have at least ten men, head of a home, head of a household, who could come together to form a synagogue. And they had no synagogue in Philippi. So what happened was, is there was a, a devout group of ladies 
led by a lady named Lydia. And they would go to a a river just outside the city limits of the city, if you will, and they would hold a prayer meeting together. And the Apostle Paul came upon this group and shared the gospel with them. And the lead convert to the gospel was Lydia. And she was a wealthy, you remember the the account of her, her conversion, but she was a wealthy maker of linens. And, a, and a successful lady by wealth standpoint, and she probably had a large home, and inside that large home was where this church started meeting, and that's when they, that's how this church came to be. The Apostle Paul, if you remember, wrote the prison epistles, and this is one of them, and he wrote this, and he wrote Philemon, and he wrote Colossians, and we'll talk about that later, from being imprisoned in Rome. And so... In that kind of situation, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church at Philippi. And if you read this book, you realize that the sense of this book is this. He was calling for them to be unified. To be a one spirit and a one mind and not competing interests. And, and not in being in conflict. As a matter of fact, there was a conflict between two ladies in the church. The Apostle Paul asked that the members of the church would help them resolve so they could live in unity and in one spirit. And what unified this church, or what unifies any church, is what we're talking about this morning, and that is our, our partnership in the gospel. We come from different backgrounds. We come from different regions of the country. We come from different customs. We come from different whatever. But the one thing that unites us in here is Christ and His gospel. That's what unites the church. And it's the fellowship or the participation in the gospel that unites any healthy church. And the church of Philippi, he doesn't, as a matter of fact, there's not, one te- there's not one quotation from the Old Testament in this book. That's kind of unique for Paul. And you don't, you don't get the sense he's trying to straighten out any doctrinal error that was happening in Philippi that he was concerned about, like he was at Corinth or maybe what was happening at Colossae or whatever. But here, he's concerned about the unity centered around Christ and his gospel. And it's a book of encouragement, and we often refer to it and talk about it as if it's a book of joy, and it is. As a matter of fact, if you count it, the word joy, glad, and rejoicing, those words are used in, the, in four short chapters 19 different times. That is even more amazing, not just the content and the theme of the book, But it's more amazing when you think about the context and the setting in which it was written. And the Apostle Paul had many reasons by our standards not to be joyful when you're chained to a Roman guard all day long and you're under arrest and your life is threatened. But yet, there's not a sliver of discouragement in this letter. It's all joy. And those words appear in, like I said, in in four chapters some 19 different times. But there's another word that appears in this book twice as much as that that's more important and deserves more emphasis. And you know what that word is? Some 40 times you'll find the name Jesus in these four short chapters. So the joy that arose from the Apostle Paul centered around the life, work, and person of Jesus Christ. And because of the transforming power of Christ and His gospel, it evoked joy in Paul's life and heart. And he wrote to it, and I want you to look at it, he says, Paul and Timothy, bond slaves, that means really a better translation of that is bond slaves of Jesus Christ. And as we've spoken of before, 
the word bond slave means happily and loyally linked to the master. A bond slave, as you'll recall, under the law, was a slave who had served his master for six years. And in the seventh year, he could go free. Or he could choose to stick around and serve the master for the rest of his life. And they would, take, they would have a ceremony and they would take the bond slave and they would bring him up to the, uh, some prominent place in the camp and they would take an awl and make a mark in his ear. And that mark in his ear denoted that by choice, not because he had to, but by choice, he elected to serve his master for the rest of his life after having been forced to serve him for six years. And we've celebrated the fact, talked about the fact over and over again, what would motivate somebody to do that? Would he be motivated to do that because of the goodness of the slave? Or would he be motivated to do that because of the goodness of the master? It's the goodness of the master. In other words, this guy would make the choice to do that if he chose to do it. To remain in service of the master for the rest of his life. By choice. When he could go free. And the only reason that we know somebody be motivated to do that would be this. They would go, you know what? I got options here. I can cut loose, I can go, and I can assert my freedom. Or, as a free man, I can remain a slave to my master. And I'm going to stick around, and here's why I'm going to do it. Over the course of the past six years, I've come to know the heart, the mind, and the character of my, of my master. And because I've come to know him, I choose to serve him. That's the kind of slavery that Christ looks for in His servants. For the ones who have taken the time in the Scriptures to plumb the depths of the greatness of His mercy toward us and His goodness toward us so that when we serve Him, we do it by choice because of His goodness. It has nothing to do with our character. It has to do with what we've come to know and believe about His. And so He's saying, okay, as a bond slave, so Paul's all in. He writes, don't you look at this, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. If the leadership of a church, is, if the gospel is not important to the leadership of a church, it won't be important to the membership of the church. Uh, so he marks out and he says, you know what, now wait a minute, let me say this to you. There's a set of people I want, to pay, I want, I want them to pay particular attention to this letter, and that is the pastors of this church and the deacons, the leadership of the church, and to all the saints... You are partners in the gospel. You are participating in the gospel. You at some level, at every level that God calls you to, are, to are, are part of the ongoing life and witness of the gospel through your service and through your profession and through your proclamation. You are partners in this. We're in this together. The reason we spend all that time and about how to share the gospel, a way to share the gospel, not the only way to share the gospel, but a way to share the gospel, is we're partners in the gospel. It's, it's, it is an it unacceptable proposition to me that anybody who will be a part of this fellowship will not be equipped from the Scriptures to know and share the gospel. I mean, if we can't, if, the, if that's not 
uh, something that we can all do. We have failed somewhere. We we're that's a gross failure on the part of the leadership of this church to know and be able to be able to sit down with somebody and tell them how they can be saved. So we spend a lot of time in doing that, but it doesn't stop there. We're partners in the gospel. I'm grateful for you. You're my partner, and I want you to do well. Because when I have a bad hole, I hopefully you're having a good one. We're in this together. Now, when I was in business school in college, I had a professor I just recently saw in our alumni letter that he just recently retired. I can't believe he's still teaching after all the time that I had been there. His name was Dr. Ware, and he was a professor in the management school there, and I'll never forget him. I don't know why I, won't for, I, don't, know why I don't forget him. He was a particularly generous, generous and gracious man, but I particularly remember him in, in the class I took from him. But the, and I don't remember anything that I learned in the class, to be honest with you, but I do remember this. I, I, I do remember this. I remember the, him, him emphasizing, emphasizing that of all the business models that you could, you could, you could start a business with, you could be a sole proprietorship, that's what Eric is. Eric has a business and he's a sole owner. He's a sole proprietor. Or you could enter into partnership with somebody and form a partnership. And there are various kinds of partnerships. Or you can be in a corporation. He literally begged us. He said, don't ever, don't ever enter into a partnership. It's the worst business model there is. And they're seldom successful. And they often lead to a lifetime of pain and problems and bitterness between partners just don't do it. And I have to say, after being a banker for some 16 years, however long I was, I have to say that in experience in watching people form partnerships, that, that, that advice was true. It often ended in disaster. If somebody had a 50-50 thing, you say, well, okay, now, you know, I've got skill here and you've got skill there. I saw it blow up time and time again. But yet, in the body of Christ, as members of the church of the living God, we're in partnership. And you know what? That's the most ideal arrangement we could have. Not that it's a business, but it's the most ideal. Because here's, here's, what, here's what this means. It means that the hard work, and sometimes it is hard work, for us to learn to love and appreciate one another, has to be done in order through Christ, for one thing, and God uses that to deal with things in our lives that we don't even know are there and don't even come to surface until we have conflict with one another. I had a friend of mine one time, he was my co-teacher, a Sunday school teacher, Sunday school class at our previous church, and he and I got into a conflict and he came into my office. And he was pretty nervous about some things he had to say to me. And, uh, but he said them in love. And I said, you know what, Mike? I said, you know, our relationship is being tested right now. And that's not a bad thing at all. That's not a bad thing at all. I said, what would be bad is if we avoid the test and we don't work through it. I said, but here's what's going to happen. If you and I act like Christians and we both work through this together with Christ holding our hand, by the time we get to the end of it, our relationship with one another won't be weaker. It'll be stronger. You know, when we, when we, if we do the hard work and we're willing to t- trust Christ, we'll, we'll become stronger. And, and you, did you know that's what happened? That's exactly what happened. 
I decided to drop my pride and I found out through that process and I find out every day I've got far too much of it. I was just going this morning before I came over here. I went to Kroger to get something to drink and I was just confessing to the Lord some pride that He had exposed in my life. And I said, oh Lord Jesus, please continue to knock the pride out of me because i got far too much of it. And, and, and God uses this partnership and the relationships that we have with Him and one another to work through anything. But if we keep in mind that what unites us and who unites us is more important and more powerful than anything that might divide us, then the relationships will be the better for it when we work through things that we invariably come up in church life. You agree with that? We're partners in the gospel. We're partners in the gospel. If, if you love somebody, you'll tell them the truth. And we'll deal with things. Instead of sweeping them under the rug, if you sweep something under the rug long enough, and then you take and pull the rug up and you look under there, it's a nasty thing to see. I'm not saying we go around looking for conflict. Much of what causes conflict inside a church could be dealt with simply because we have the grace enough to overlook it. It really doesn't matter. The only time that I know of that it's not that it's that it's unacceptable to overlook it is if Brian and I, for instance, are in conflict, and that conflict arises out of something I see in his life that I think he needs to deal with, and I love him enough to tell him. Other than that, if it's not some habitual bent in his life or something that that seems to be characteristic of him, I just overlook it. Or should overlook it. We're partners in the gospel. Your walk with Christ has an impact on me and my walk with Christ has an impact on you. We've talked about this many times before and it's a tragedy in church circles nowadays, but your faith is personal. But your faith is not private. Did you hear that? Your faith is personal, but your faith is not private. You are part of the body of Christ if you've repented and put your faith in Jesus. You've been endowed with spiritual gifts, at least one. And I stand as a member of this fellowship in need of you exercising your spiritual gift. And you stand in need of me exercising mine. You should make it your business to go into the Scriptures. You can start in Romans chapter 12, by the way, if you want to, and look at the parallel verses. But you should care enough to find out what your spiritual gift is and then go about using it. Because you're partners in the Gospel. My sanctification in the heart and mind of God has and stands to be enhanced. And my progress in the faith stands to be and make more progress when you use your exercise, your spiritual gift among this fellowship. And yours, by the same token, stands to benefit by mine. The use of it. And we all have one. Every last one of us have at least one spiritual gift. And the spiritual gifts can be divided into two, two categories. Speaking and serving. They fit in one of those two general categories. And I want you to know something. If you ask God what your spiritual gift is, and you really mean it, and you plan on using it, He will tell you. 
You think He's going to withhold that from you? It's like me. God gave me a heart attack in November. And I asked the Lord, Lord, is this part of sanctification? Am I have, did I have this heart attack because I was in your will? Or did I have this heart attack because I was outside your will? And He spoke to me clearly through His Word that He disciplined me by giving me a heart attack. I am grateful for the heart attack. It's one of the greatest things that God's ever done for me because there were two things in my life that I refused to repent of inside here that God dealt with and has made me free through my heart attack. And I can't help but be grateful for that. The Bible says that God disciplines those He loves. And the Lord just spoke in my heart one day sitting in my chair in my living room and said, Son, it's just an evidence of the fact that I love you. And you know what? That changed me. Let me ask you this. If I am a imperfect man, and when I discipline my children, I go about at great lengths to inform them as to why I discipline them. Why wouldn't a perfect God do that for His children? You think God just disciplines us and then says, figure it out. No. He disciplines us and says specifically, son, here's why you've been disciplined. And we learn from it. Because discipline is not just so God can discipline His children and chasten us with no benefit. The Bible says all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but to sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. God disciplines to instruct and train and transform. He doesn't just do it for the fun of it. By the same token, if you want to find out what your spiritual gift is so that you can find out whether or not you're using it and celebrate the use of it without you even knowing it and also learn more about developing and using that gift in the body of Christ, if you ask God, He will tell you what it is. And He will give you the strength, the power, and the quickening of His Holy Spirit to know when to use it and how to use it through His power and not your own. But every one of you have one. You understand that we're partners in the gospel. That's why the Apostle Paul was so full of joy. Because he was working out his partnership. And he was celebrating a church that seemed to be doing the same thing. And all of that is centered around Christ. Now, okay, what is the gospel then? Well, let's go to Romans chapter 5. Now, there are a lot of places that we can go to look at this. But let's just go here in Romans chapter 5. And I want you to pay attention, if you will, to verse 10. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. There are a lot of ways to define the gospel. I understand that. There are many more definitions that you can get from a lot of guys uh, and ladies who have taken the time to write about it and define it in a bunch of different ways. And it all goes, it boils down to being the same. But I know that there are a lot of biblically rooted, very good ways of putting this. But I just don't know a way, personally, that it's better put in the Scriptures than in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. And look what it says. Here's what the Gospel is. The Gospel is this. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. The gospel is that men are born into sin and are therefore enemies of God. And God 
through His love, sent His Son to reconcile us to Himself. We who were once enemies have been reconciled to God through the substitutionary atoning death of His Son. And the, the relationship where we were at in, at enemies of God, we're now called, through Christ, the friends of God. And we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's a message of reconciliation. And then, that reconciliation, though, doesn't just occur, and then it's up to us to keep that going. I'd be in lots of trouble if that were true. The day I got saved, God said, okay, now, do your best. And let's stay friends now. Let's, let's keep this going, okay? And if you'll do the following, I'll do the following. And you know God's going to do His part. But I've got to do mine. And I've got to struggle and do whatever I can to make sure that reconciliation, we stay reconciled. No, 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 no. That's not the gospel. The gospel is we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son and we're eternally saved through the resurrected life of His Son. I am saved by grace through faith. I am kept by grace through faith. And I hope to have the hope of future glory by grace through faith. So the gospel is enemies being reconciled through the initiative of God and the work of God in the Son of God through His death, burial, and resurrection. Reconciling us to Himself and sustaining that relationship throughout all eternity through the very life of Christ Himself, which has been given to you and me. It is a message of being released from the penalty of sin. It is a message of us being released from the power sin has to rule us and control us. And it is the hope of future glory that one day we are going to be delivered from the very presence of sin. Power and penalty, power and presence. All the work of God in Christ, not the work of men. Hallelujah. Praise His holy name. That we're partners in that. We're partners in sharing the gospel. We're partners in living the gospel. <clears throat> because look what he said. He said in Philippians 1 6, Your partnership in the gospel I celebrate because here's my confidence. Look at verse 6. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. All the tenses of salvation are covered in that verse. Right? We are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. And the gospel encompasses all of that. The gospel encompasses my salvation, my sanctification, and my hope of future glory. And we all have a stake in that. We have a stake in and a partnership. And that partnership includes suffering and sharing. Look at it. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Just as it's right for me to think of this, it's right for me to think this way about you because I have you in my heart. And here's why: in both my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You all are partakers with me of grace. It means that the suffering of the gospel and the sharing of the gospel, we both partnership in. And God calls that unmerited favor. How about that? 
The very things that we can resent, God calls favor. We resent suffering, we resent difficulty, and we resent often the adversity that comes with the, with, with, with the, uh, the Christian life. And God, in His patience, looks at us and goes, you are resenting the very thing that you should regard as unmerited favor. Because it is through your suffering that my sufferings, uh, the suffering of my son is put on display. And as I put my suffering, my son's suffering on display through you in suffering and your patient endurance thereby, I am making you more like him and I am proclaiming you, him through you. And we resent that. The Apostle Paul is celebrating it. He's saying, listen, you're a part of this. We're, the suffering that goes along with being a part of the body of Christ and in the sharing of the suffering and the proclamation of the gospel that comes through it in patient endurance through trial and the profession of the gospel itself is grace. It is unmerited favor that I would be privileged to have any suffering on the part of Christ is unmerited favor. It is God's favor toward me. Consider the disciples. They heal somebody. He's been crippled for 40 years. Word breaks out. And everybody goes, hey, there's no way that this guy could have been healed except the supernatural work of God. And so the Sanhedrin get together, all the religious folks. And they say, how are we going to stop this? They say, well, let's, you can see him in their little huddle. Okay, well, here's what we can do. And then somebody speaks up and says, let's, uh, let's kill him. No, we can't do that. Although we'd all like to, because if we do that, it's just going to make this thing grow. And the people are going to get mad because they know that God did this. So it'll put us in jeopardy. Let's don't do that. Well, we can't ignore them. What do we do? And so they all get in a little huddle and they say, oh, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll beat them up and then we'll tell them, don't talk about Jesus anymore. Okay? And they gather them together and they do just that. And they beat them up and they said, now quit talking about Jesus. And they said, we're going to obey God and not men. And we're going to talk about Jesus, regardless of what you do. You know what the response to that was? They've been so mean to us as Christians. It's, you know, we're just pitiful. It's just pitiful how we've been treated. It's pitiful we've been rejected. It's so pitiful. You know what the Bible says they did? They leaped and jumped for joy. Because they'd be counted worthy to suffer as a result of their profession of Christ. Contrast that with how we act today. If the media has anything negative to say about Christians, and they often do, what do you expect? You expect them to jump on the bandwagon and, and, and commend us? And what do we do? We whine and complain about it because we've lost sight of the fact that if you suffer as a result of being in the middle of God's will, it's God's grace that you suffer. He's God's being favorable towards you. Why was that? Because back in their memory banks, here's what they remembered when Jesus said, listen to me, in the day that they persecute you for your faith and they revile you as being evil for my name's sake, leap, rejoice, and jump for joy. For great is your reward. 
We're partners in the gospel. We're partners. We should be encouraging one another. We shouldn't be calling back from ridicule. We should celebrate it when it comes. We don't invite it. We don't, we don't ask for it. We're not contentious, but we do contend for the faith. And we should. And when suffering or ridicule comes our way, we should rejoice over it. And say, thank you, Jesus, because we're partners in the gospel. The suffering and the sharing. Because the Apostle Paul, I want you to know something. My family and I, 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 I've been studying in my personal Bible time in Philippians. I don't normally do this, but I'll usually stay in a, a book of Scripture. I, the way I study the Bible is something I, I learned from a pastor that I don't know personally, but I just know of his ministry. And he had shared the way he studies the Bible is, is he takes a passage of Scripture about the size of 1 John and reads it every day for 30 days and then takes another slice of Scripture. So if it's a book that's like bigger than 1 John, like it's, it's Romans. Romans has 16 chapters. Well, I'll read Romans chapters 1, verse 4, 1 through 4 for 30 days, and then 5 through 8, and so on and so forth until I finish it. And I've been studying the Bible like that for years, and it's changed my life. I have to tell you that right now. And so uh, I'm in Philippians right now. And now God's renewed it, and now I'm in Philippians for two months. And I don't normally do that because I just can't get away from it. It is just enamored me. When the Apostle Paul, I want to encourage you with something. When the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Philippians, he was chained to a Roman Praetorian guard. It's a good chance, good possibility. He didn't believe it was going to happen at that time. Ultimately, it did happen. But it was a good, it was a good possibility that he could get his head cut off. And uh, Caesar, he could be brought before Caesar and say, you know what, we're going, to get a, we're going to get rid of this guy. And they ultimately did. Under house arrest, as he was, apparently some really neat things happened. For one is, if you look at the end of the letter, look at the very end of the letter in Romans chapter 4. It says... Verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. More than likely, he's writing of people who are part of Caesar's administration who have come to know Christ through his influence. Think of that. There are people that are being won to Christ where he's at. Rather than moaning about not being out there doing what God called him to do, i.e., plant churches and be a missionary, the, the first Christian missionary, and use his apostolic authority and credentials to, to, to establish churches. He's there tied to a guard all day now. Well, you know good and well if you're taking shifts and you're tied to the Apostle Paul and you're chained to Him. I suspect that you're going to hear something about Jesus. Wouldn't you think? It's amazing when you talk to Christians and sometimes you'll ask them and it'll be a relationship they've had for years and say, well, you know, this, this so-and-so has been my friend for 20 years. And you say, well, are they a believer? I don't know. Really? You don't know? After 20 years? 10 years? All these relationships. The Apostle Paul is tied to a Roman guard 
And they take shifts being tied to him. And you know word's getting out. Oh boy, you're fixing to hear it now. Preacher. You know, and he's going to share the gospel with them. And there he is. And he's full of joy. He has no pity party. Oh, I'm not out here sharing the gospel. I'm not out here doing what God called me to do because I'm chained here. Call my lawyer. Call the, call the Alliance Defense Fund. Get Jay Sekulow on it. You know, I mean, that, that's all got its place. But I'm here to tell you, it's none of that. It's like, you know what I'm going to do? What I'm called to do right where I'm doing it. And also look at verse 12 of chapter 1. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Here's at least what we know. We know that he's speaking about believers in Caesar's household. So either there were some believers there who were strengthened by his life of witness or came to know Christ while he was there, probably a little of both. But also we do know this, that while he is there, he's celebrating the fact that people, some wrongly motivated, some motivated by their own self-interest and self-promotion, and some motivated by godly motives, were preaching the gospel. And he rejoiced over that, even though he wasn't the one doing it. But then he said, what's happened to me is turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Here's what we do know about it. Philippians, Philemon, and Colossians were written while he is tied up to that Roman guard. I would say that's the furtherance of the gospel. Because so 2,000 years later, at this church service and many others like it, People are preaching from one of those three books. And we're still studying and benefiting from one of the three books that were written while he was there. I would say that qualifies for the furtherance of the gospel. So rather than having a pity party, he's writing epistles that wind up in God's Word that we're still studying now. This truth was brought home to me in a very vivid way on our vacation. And I, I shared this with you. But we went to the Four Corners because in the Four Corners, I don't know if you're probably familiar with what that is, but that's where Utah and Colorado and New Mexico and Arizona meet. It's the, the, where the four states meet. Years ago, Jill, when she was six years old, had a picture of her uh, on all fours, you know, being in four states at one time. And so we wanted to go up there uh, to have a picture of all our, all our children, you know, just as a novelty have a picture of them being in four states at one time, that kind of thing. So we're out in the middle, and this is in the middle of really what's a sovereign nation, a Navajo nation. It's an Indian reservation. But there's nothing out there. And our van starts running hot. And I'm not saying much to the family about it because I didn't want to evoke the kind of fear that I was nursing by myself. And uh, I was watching that heat, the temperature gauge meter, and it just kept going up, 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 up. And you know I don't know anything about cars, but I do know that that's not good. I know that. <laughs> and so, uh, as that thing was going up, I was thinking, this is not really a good place for this to happen. Because, I mean, I'm telling you, there is nothing around here except a, a little house every now and then. And so we stopped by an obscure little store, and I called our mechanic that we know through Ted. He's a great guy. He said, yeah, you need to get some help somehow or another as soon as you can. He said, I can't come see you, but I, I, would, I would if I could. That's so well. So we're several miles away. I don't remember how many, but we were several miles away from uh, what looked to be a fairly sizable town. And we got into there, and there was no help available to us. 
So then we, I said, well, I tell you what, we're going to go on by God's grace to the next town, which is Farmington, New Mexico. And it's about the size of Rome, I guess. And the car didn't run hot until we got in the middle of that town. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I was so grateful. I was grateful. Man, when the steam started rising, I was upset. But I was thinking, man, that's a lot better that the steam started rising here than if it did at Four Corners. So God got us. I don't know how many miles it was. I had to go back and look. But it was, I'm sure, at least over 60 miles. And the car never ran hot. And we're out in the desert pretty much. So that was God being gracious to us. We run hot in the in the parking lot of a furniture store. And I go in and ask the lady if we could leave our van there overnight. And she says, well, i got a Corvette. I, can't. I said, well, I don't think you could carry our family in a Corvette. <laughs> so she recruited two or three other or two or three other workers that worked with her. And they all pulled it together. And we moved all our stuff into their cars and went down like the Beverly Hillbillies mm-hmm. down to the street about a couple miles to a hotel. Because... I was going to leave our car overnight and find out how to get it fixed. And I, got, and I was in Philippians at the time, reading in my personal Bible study. And I just thought, okay, okay. <clears throat> I believe this is going to result in the furtherance of the gospel. That's why you've got us here, Lord. I got to share the gospel with a guy who took me in the car over to the hotel. His name was Mike. He's not saved. He thought you could work your way to heaven. I had an opportunity to tell him that it's through the blood of Christ that you're saved. Then, then that night we went to Walmart and we were at Subway, eating at the Subway in Walmart. And I told Jill, I said, she went on to go get some stuff and Catherine and Andrew were lingering with me. And I said, I sense I'm supposed to go talk to this guy standing right there that, that made the sandwich for us. <clears throat> and Catherine and Andrew strangely said they felt like the same thing. They said, you know what, Daddy, we feel the same way. I said, okay, we'll see what happens. Whatever, and shared the gospel with him and the guy got saved standing there. And God kept customers out, supernaturally. I mean, I'm telling you. And so I'm sitting there, and I told him, I, uh, I said, his name is David. I said, David, you think, do you believe that God would shut our van down and strand us out here in the middle of Farmington, New Mexico, so you could hear about his son? He started tearing up, and so did I. I said, yeah, he'd do that. God would do that. I, think, I put it this way. If God would put His Son on Calvary, on that cross, for you, He'd certainly make our van run hot for you. Then, the next day, at the Jiffy Loop, I'm walking in there, and the only black man in New Mexico walks in. <laughs> and we're sitting there, because, I mean, I'm serious, there's just not a lot of them there. And, uh, and so he comes walking in, and he's sitting there, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to share the gospel with him. So we're right underneath <clears throat> there's a cliff. I'm talking about a cliff. Right next to the uh, place where we're getting the car fixed. And on top of this cliff is a church. And it's got three crosses up there. Prominent that you can see all over the city. And we're standing at the base. Of the, we're standing here. And he's getting his car worked on. I'm getting mine worked on. And we begin to... I, we strike up a conversation. And I ask him about where he stood for eternity and all that. And he stood, he stood up and come to find out he moved to New Mexico from Chicago because he got a scholarship to play basketball with the University of New Mexico. He is six foot eight. So we're talking like this. I'm standing there at his belt buckle. And uh, God gave me the opportunity from Genesis to Revelation to share the gospel with him. And I took him outside and I said, You see those crosses up there? You see what? I said, I'm, I'm going to explain to you from the Bible what those crosses mean. 
And I kept being drawn and attracted to those crosses. So then I find out. This, I'd already found it out, but I just stayed at Jiffy Lube because Jiffy Lube started being a profitable place. And I was thinking, man, if I'm going to be tied up here at Jiffy Lube like Paul was tied up at Rome, we'll just see what happens. Got to share the gospel with another guy who comes walking in, a big guy with a 10-gallon hat on. You know, <laughs> howdy. And so here we are. And so, man, we're just having a great time having the church in there. And I'm knowing I'm going to be there for another 24 hours because they, they got to order the radiator and you know, and from somewhere. And so we got to be there in the, well, I could either, normally what I would have done was gotten upset about that and said, you know what, we're supposed to get back for church, everything's planned for us to be back home. And I just said, you know what, this is going to result in the furthest of the gospel. So, we go down to the hotel room, and the pool where we're staying is torn up. So, they're working on it. And so I'm thinking, well, if we've got to be here for the 24 hours, and Abigail and Paul are with me, and Abigail and Paul would rather go to a hotel and swim in the pool than see the Grand Canyon. <laughs> and so, um, uh, so I said, well, if we're going to be here for another 24 hours, why don't we change hotels? Man, we had, oh, God, I'm talking about bags full of, you know, three-week trip. We got all So we gather all the thing up and find a hotel down the street that's at the same price, but their pool is working. And so I'm thinking, well, if we're going to stay here another 24 hours, let's go to a place where they can swim. It'll make it better on them. You know, so we gather up all our stuff, and we're walking down the street. And this street is like 41. And the busiest part of 41 is what it looks like. I mean, I'm not, it's not like a little obscure place. So we're all walking, carrying all this stuff. And we look like refugees from something. And we walk by a Chili's restaurant. And inside the Chili's, there's this woman who looks out and says, I believe that family's stranded. And I think they need help. And one of the ladies she was eating with said, well, why don't you go out and see if you can help them? And she said, I will. And so she went outside. And guess who she was? She was the wife of the pastor of that church that had the cross on the hill. And because we changed hotel rooms, we now met her and they've become dear friends. And now i got somebody to follow up on what God started there because I have a partner in the gospel who pastors Grace Hill Church above the Jiffy Loop where we got our car fixed. God did all that. I said all that to say, if you are a partner in the gospel, there's nothing that can happen to you that won't further it. Did you hear it? If you're a partner in the gospel, there's nothing that can be thrown at you that won't do anything except make it progress. I tell you what, whatever happens to you, you will progress in Christ's likeness if you respond right. And God will put your life on display in front of people who need to see and hear about it. And I believe if that ever got a hold of us, we would walk in a level of joy that we're currently not walking in. That's why there was so much joy in the Apostle Paul. He was like, I don't care what you throw at me. If I stick around, it's Christ. If I die, it's Christ. What are you going to do to me? What do you do with a guy like that? That's got to unnerve the devil so bad that they, you know what, if I, if I persecute these people, the witness of the gospel grows. If I bother to kill them, first of all, I can't kill them unless God lets it happen. He's in charge of that too. And if I kill them, they go to heaven. What do you do with these people? That's just got to aggravate him to no end. And I'm glad it does. Whatever happens to you, if we're calibrated right, 
And the only reason I was is because I happened to be in Philippians and it's God's grace. Because every time I've seized opportunities, they've been a big and I've missed them. I promise you that. But my point is, the point is, we're partners in the gospel. And we have a stake in each other's lives. I have a stake in what happens to you. You have a stake in what happens to me. I have a stake in how you're living. You have a stake in how I'm living. We should help one another. We should encourage one another. We should love one another. Why do you think at the bottom, when Camilla and Meredith are sharing the good news at the Good News Club, it's still elementary, why do you think we put that on there? You know why we put that on there? Because they're partners in the gospel. I have a part in that. If Julia has an opportunity to go share at a campus somewhere and uses the abortion um, stance that a Christian ought to take as an opportunity to be salt and light somewhere, and she tells us about that and prays. I value those prayer requests because I'm thinking, I'm a partner in that. You participate in that. I'm a partner in the gospel. All of that stuff. What's going on in Kenya right now? It's a partner in the gospel. Bruce is a partner in the gospel. You're a partner in the gospel. Partners in the gospel are not people that stand behind pulpits. The people that are standing behind pulpits are the ones who encourage and equip the partners in the gospel. We're partners in the gospel. Do you realize that? He began a good work in you. Christ did. And he's going to complete it. He's going to see to it that it's completed. You are going to be like him one day. You're going to see him as he is, and you will be like him one day. And in the meantime, he's leaving us around here so that he can form himself in us, so that people who don't yet know him can see him accurately and and come to know him. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're partners in the gospel. This is a celebration. And the reason we can come around this table and all be different and from different backgrounds and have the same celebration is because of the blood and the body that's symbolized there unites us. And it unites us in a way. Greg's from England. I'm from South Georgia. I don't know how he and I communicate. You know, he probably thinks, what did he just say? And, 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 but yeah, what are we? We're brothers in Christ. So we're united. Why? Because we're partners in the gospel. Amen? You hear it? We're partners in the gospel. I want to challenge you this morning. Don't forget that. Do some meditating on that. Let that sink down and be encouraged. Whatever's happening to you, whoever you live beside, at your points of greatest aggravation in your life can stand to do nothing but further the gospel if you respond right. And I want to challenge you with this. Start with Romans chapter 12 and get you, get you look at the parallel passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll send you a list of every time the spiritual gifts are mentioned in the Bible. There are five of them. I'll send it to you. Go before the Lord. Ask Him, Lord, what's my spiritual gift? If you don't know what it is already. And Lord, you raise up opportunities for me to be spiritually aware and spiritually oriented to you so, so, so much so that I use it. Because I need the encouragement. There's some of you got the gift of encouragement. Sometimes I get discouraged. You ever get discouraged? None of y'all ever get discouraged? We need people with the gift of encouragement to come along and help us. And, 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 and Do you ever stand in need of mercy? There are people here who have got the gift of mercy and need to exercise that gift. Speaking gifts, serving gifts. People who give, that's a gift. And they don't want to be seen or known about or heard. It's not that it's visible. It's just practical and influential. Let's find out what our gifts are and let's start looking at each other so that the way my father used to look at his partner, and when he'd be up there, and boy, he'd get on the tee and he'd hit a shot right down the middle, and it'd be 300 yards right down the middle of the fairway, 
Instead of my dad going, mine went in the woods, he'd go, that's my partner. I bet I heard him say that a million times. That's my partner. Way to go, partner. Because he stood to benefit from him doing well. Wouldn't it be great if we looked at each other in the body of Christ like that? I stand to benefit. The kingdom stands to benefit when you do well. And when you're not doing well, I want to help you so you will. And when I'm not doing well, help me so we will. And let's pay attention to those things on the prayer list. And let's pray for one another. Let's stop what we're doing. And if, if Phil and John are at the court because they're working through a foster care situation, let's pray that the gospel is, progresses as a result of that. You know, and when you get us the message, let's stop what we're doing. Let's pray. I knew when Paul got misplaced the other day that you, I knew a bunch of you were going to stop and pray. And that's what you did. And I appreciate that. It's, you see what I'm saying? Let's stop. We're partners in the gospel. We are partners in the gospel. And we stand to benefit from everybody's progress in faith because we're all a work in process and he's conforming us in the image of his son. Way to go, partner. You're my partner in the gospel. I don't think of another way. I don't know of another way to celebrate that and symbolize that greater than the Lord's Supper. Be honest with you. You sit at this table, that means you have a place there and it was purchased by the blood and body of Christ. And that unites us. Amen.